let me acknowledge that more than likely the story I'm about to tell you is apocryphal. It just didn't historically happen this way. Or at all. But it doesn't matter because it doesn't change the meaning of the story or the import of the story to today's conversation with Tiffany Thomas. I've also been surprised by my fellow human beings on more than one occasion by how quick and witty and intelligent people are. So that gives me hope that these events actually happened. And because it's my story, it takes place at the University of Kansas in the late 1990s. That time period as grunge is fading out with flannel and baggy jeans and in was coming I don't know, Britney Spears and Shakira and everything that was the Backstreet Boys. But I digress. I absolutely loved my undergraduate coursework. I was a history student, so I was exposed on numerous times and numerous occasions to the full scope of liberal arts studies, which includes philosophy. And our protagonist in the story is a philosophy student, advanced, graduate, it doesn't matter, they're sitting down to take an examination in philosophy for their final. I have to give credit to this story, of course, to Bruce Berglund, my mentor and advisor in undergrad. He's probably the person who told this to me the first time, and he's getting a huge kick out of it right now as I struggle through it. But because of my background in history and the type of history that I studied, which was ideological history, it wasn't military battles or who won the Civil War or, you know, what society was doing at any one given period in time. It was about the uh, the flow of ideas and about the change of philosophy from one era to the other. So I got really deep into all of the different philosophical movements that happened in modern history. Yes, it was overly European-centric, and I realize that's a problem. You know, one of my textbooks famously talked about the fall of the Roman Empire to the Renaissance and it said, there was a thousand years of darkness when barbarians and uncouth people milled about. It's a really interesting way to refer to an entire thousand years of humanity. But hey, they needed to get to the Renaissance. They needed to get to philosophers like Montesquieu or Voltaire. Montesquieu, of course, famous for being the person who basically coined the concept of checks and balances or Rousseau and his social contract, which makes no sense to anybody unless you've been drinking as much wine as Rousseau probably drank, which led to Hobbes in the English theories, life is short, brutish, cruel, and nasty in the state of nature. Then you would come upon somebody like Locke or Adam Smith or even the American import Thomas Paine in his common sense. It was this wonderful time period in which eventually would become the French Salon, which is basically just the word for a bunch of people who've got way more money and way too much time on their hands, and would get together and philosophize about society and life and how wonderful the world is. If you need an image in your mind for what this actually looks like, I don't know, watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and her father's character, Midge's father's character, when he's off in Europe or when he is uh, meeting in the third season with a bunch of counter-revolutionaries. Hey, it's the 60s, man. Again, I've digressed. Our protagonist, about ready to take a philosophy exam, a final exam, an important one. And because it's the, the late 90s, he's using a blue book, she's using a blue book. 
And for those who don't know, that is that college-ruled collection of paper that's stapled with a slightly heftier weight paper that's colored blue, which gives it the name Blue Book, in which you would handwrite all of your answers to the questions that were posed to you. For those of us who went to college during that time period, we know the pain of your hand dying and cramping because you were writing so much with so many ideas. But our protagonist had a very simple question to answer in this philosophy class. And it is, what is courage? The room goes silent. The test begins. People start writing out their answers. Perfect five-paragraph essays that have thesis and topic sentences. And there's formulations and mad scratchings out. And our protagonist just sits quietly and still for a few minutes while thinking. And then puts pen to paper. And very quickly walks to the front of the room drops the test book on the table, and walks out. There were only two words written in that paper to answer the question of what is courage. This is. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. What the lesson I take from that story is that oftentimes, action, the act of living your life in the way that makes your life seem true is so much more powerful than all the words put together. It is so much more powerful than any mission statement or issue topic sentence or press release or entry into a dictionary. Action is what gets remembered the most. And the way that we live is what people around us see and what people around us take with them to identify who we are in this world that we live in together. Tiffany Thomas is a transgender woman. She is a transgender athlete. But more importantly, she's a person. And a few weeks ago, she and I began talking about telling her story here, telling the story of her journey to understanding identity her story to getting into the sport of bike racing and how that process has evolved for her throughout the course of the last several years. And now in this very critical moment in American history where we are facing laws that are draconian and directed specifically at her community and trying and struggling to figure out what we want to do against those laws and to help these people who are our brothers and sisters in the bike racing world. That's what we sat down and talked about here. Hard Transition, the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. This show is a proud member of it. Head on over to wideanglepodium.com to see the full lineup of shows, to see all of the offerings that we've got on YouTube. Head on over there, see what Bill and little guy Matt Allen are doing over there. And please do consider becoming a member and helping support this content creator-owned effort. We really, really, really appreciate it. So we're going to get into the episode here in a second, but we need to hear first from Nikki Peterson of Source Endurance, who are bringing this show to you today. So head on over to source.net and join Nikki and myself and hundreds of other athletes in trying to become better athletes, better people, by working with the best coaches in the country. My name is Nikki Peterson, and I've been a Source Endurance athlete since May of 2019. 
I've had my pro UCI mountain bike license for the last five years and have started dabbling in gravel, but I've struggled with staying healthy. Since beginning to work with my coach, Adam Mills, I've been able to increase my volume and intensity all while staying very healthy. We took advantage of the spring and I was able to do more work than ever, setting PRs and workouts, grabbing QOMs on Strava, and winning local time trial races. Adam is the most knowledgeable coach I've ever worked with. More importantly, he understands the balance between full-time work, relationships, and training. The raddest part about working with Adam is that he really believes in me. He knows when to give me encouragement and when to challenge me. If you want to join me as a Source Endurance athlete, head to source.net, choose your coaching package, and use Criterium Nation for $50 off the starting price. So my name is Tiffany Thomas. I live in New York City in the Upper West Side, and I race for a small little team that's out of Philadelphia called the Philly Bike Expo. It's an elite women's team. We have women that are all over the country, New York, Philadelphia, and Colorado. And you guys have an exceptionally good-looking kit, too. I remember coming across it in 2019 when I was racing at Mainline in Westchester, and it also popped up on a uh, kit bracket competition at the beginning of the pandemic that was run by Attack Pictures and and the, the guy who's behind Attack Pictures and I have been friendly for a while. So I was really excited to see your guys' kit pop up. It's got every color that you need to have on it, plus all the white that you need to have on it. It just looks really good. Thank you. It makes me feel fast. <laughs> and that's the important part about bike racing. It's not how good you actually are. It's how good you look on the way to getting to where you are, or at least that's what they tell me. But we are here to actually talk about something exceptionally serious and something very important because it's 2021 and the world that we live in is ever-changing, like it's been since the dawn of time. But we are confronting new issues that don't really have very defined outlines anymore. And the issue that we're talking about here is about transgender athletes and their struggles, the issues that they're facing. And so, you know, without kind of any further ado, you are a transgender woman. I'm a transgender woman, which means that I was born with male anatomy and my gender, how I feel in my brain didn't match how I was born. And as I sit here, because we're doing this on Zoom, as I sit here looking at you, you appear like a woman. You are dressed as a woman. If I was to run into you on 7th Avenue, I'd be like, that's a woman. And so the only reason we are using the a, the adjective transgender in this context is because it's critical to discuss this community in context with what is happening in our country right now. Because and I don't want to put the cart before the horse or get to the end before the beginning. There's a lot of ugly, ugly things that are coming from state and local governments right now when it comes to the transgender community. Can you preview just a couple of those topics that we're going to be talking about a little bit later? I think it's come hard and fast. 
the last couple of weeks with the bills that have gone through Congress of several states that would preclude women primarily that were assigned male on their birth certificate from competing in K-12 sports with other children. There are other bills as well that would prevent health care providers from providing health care to people in emergent need if they had a religious exemption. So they felt that they could not in good conscience provide health care to that person. Which is kind of contrary to the basics of the Hippocratic Oath that you treat the patient, the person in front of you. And then what disturbs me just as much is some of the bills are going to prevent having health care for people that are under the age of 18. Even those that have already started to have endocrine assistance, they would then not be allowed to provide that. And they would actually then take it away from those individuals, which would be a permanent detriment to both their physical and mental well-being for the rest of their lives. Once you have the change that starts with masculinization of testosterone, those are permanent. So the changes to your voice, the changes to some of the bone structure, which I'm sure we'll get into later, the quality of life and how people treat you is different for people that have transitioned early versus those that aren't able to transition to later in life. In doing research for this show, and I will be the first to admit that coming into this, even having a Juris Doctorate, even going to college, even trying to consider myself somebody who is up to speed on, on issues, I was very ignorant of a lot of things about the transgender community. I've heard about it. I've seen things in social media and on the news, but my ignorance, I'm afraid, was going to lead to some potential for insensitivity. And there is nothing wrong with being ignorant to a topic. Being ignorant to a topic and then running your mouth about that topic is the problem. That's where you become insensitive, and that's where you become intolerant, and that's where you become a lot of other things that we are trying to avoid in not only this conversation, but in this world. I have to give huge thanks to uh, Celine Oberholzer of Wolfpack. She has been providing me with evidence and information and, and some guide. And, and Tiffany, obviously, you've been doing that the same, trying to get me up to speed with my research. One of the things, and of course, by prefacing that way, one of the things that I've learned is that when you have a transgender friend, you should not automatically assume that that person wants to be your transgender dictionary or that person wants to explain every part or issue in their community as much as you may want them to. That being said, you and I have talked about this and I need help and a lot of other people who are like me, cisgender, heterosexual males, heterosexual women, you know, people who are just coming from this traditional, and I'm using that in huge, massive air quotes, world that don't have exposure with transgender communities. We need help. We need help learning about your community you know, proper vocabulary, faux pas or socially inappropriate topics. You know, what is the basic difference between sexual preference, gender identity, and sex? 
in as brief a period of time as possible. And I love giving you that caveat. What are some of the big things that you see folks who are cisgender, heterosexual, male or female? So cisgender itself means gender that you were assigned at birth is how you identify. It's a relatively new term, 1990s, look that up. Tiffany, tell us, what are some of the big things that you, in your experience, see cisgender, heterosexual people make mistakes on? So I think one of the best resources is the gingerbread.org, and that has a cute little gingerbread man. I don't know if it's a man or a woman, has not defined, but it really breaks down the idea that there's a difference between the sex, which is how you were born, whether you have male organs, female organs, or something in between. And then there's the concept of gender identity. So that's what's going on in your brain. So do you feel like you're a male or a female, a boy or a girl? Gender expression. So you can be a masculine or feminine man or a woman. So that's a separate issue. And then sexuality. So I think that people hear sex and they don't tease out that sex and sexuality are very different. So who are you attracted to? So you have, how are you born? Who are you attracted to? How do you identify in your head? And then how do you express that? Do you express yourself by dressing and behaving feminine, masculine? There's a continuity with all these and they don't have to be set in stone. They could shift over time. And so you could be gender fluid. You can be fluid in your gender expression. And these are all things that aren't necessarily set in stone. I think that gives people sometimes unease because they don't know what to do with that. So what are some of the faux pas that well-intentioned people still fall into? For example, it is transgender, not transgendered. There is no extra ED. That's something that I just learned today, and I'm super thankful for you for teaching me that because I would have made that mistake a million times. What are some other you know, faux pas or issues that you face that, that run the gamut from mildly annoying to actually hurtful? I think one of the things that society we're obsessed with is genitalia, and it's never okay to ask people what their genitalia look like what surgeries they've had, what surgeries they're planning on having. It's really nobody's business except for if you're planning on being in a relationship romantically with somebody that you know potentially could be germane to that experience, but otherwise that's not okay. Asking somebody what their name was before, that's also not okay. It puts somebody into a box and puts somebody into potentially a very vulnerable position. They don't want to go there. And then it also makes them feel like you're going to look them up and to look at them and experience them in a different way. And then obviously most people, especially women, don't like to share how old they are. And so don't ask somebody their age. What about the issue of pronouns? Because being misgendered uh, is something that I've come to learn is particularly aggravating or annoying and can border on being painful. I have, I've been misgendered myself. Most of the time it happens on the phone. I apparently, my voice sounds a lot like my mom's voice when she was my age. So it is a little bit more high pitched, I guess you'll say a little bit more feminine. The beauty of this microphone that I've got here, apparently it contains a function called the big bottom. I love it. 
It gives me a big bottom. Uh, not going to help me with my climbing, but that's a different story. But I've also been misgendered in person because I have for the last 10 years worn my hair longer. And so on a plane, I remember one point in time I was doing work, had my head bent down. So my hair was covering my face. So it was obscured and the flight attendant mammed me. And I snapped up and I looked at this flight attendant and she was very apologetic about it. But like these things start to start to really kind of get at me after a while. I mean, I was mammed the other day on the phone and it aggravates me. And I have always identified as a man. I, it's never been a sensitivity of mine, but even for me, it's an issue. So talk about the pronouns. So I think that if you're ever not sure, it's always better to ask what their required gender pronouns are. We used to use this cute little, when I was in college at Berkeley, our, your PGP, your preferred gender pronoun, but really they're not preferred. They're what you need and what are required because that's just one of the least, the very least that anybody can do to show respect to somebody else. And so I think that we owe it to people that we're in conversation with that are being kind with their time and their presence to use what they want you to use. So whether it's for me, she, her, hers, uh, some people are gender queer, and so they don't identify with she or he. Instead, they use they, and that's okay. I think that in our society, we're not used to thinking outside the dichotomy of she and he, and so it takes time to get used to using they, but it's something that's important to them, and I think that it's a way to show respect. But to your point, I think that it's even tougher for transgender individuals because you have these gender markers that people use as cues to decide whether you're male or female. And so I think that there's a lot of leeway that we aren't afforded to transgender individuals because there's a finite number of cues. And you know, my vocal cords were changed with testosterone, so my voice is not as sultry as cisgender women. And so I can't necessarily wear more masculine clothes or have short, cute haircuts or lift weights and have a whole bunch of bulk. Obviously, it's contraindicated for bike racing anyway, and that's not what I want. But even if I wanted that, I would feel that I would be more likely to be misgendered. And then as a cyclist, that's even further confounded because men and women are dressing equally ridiculously in spandex where you're wearing just microns of clothing. So you're barely removed from being naked anyway. Everybody's shaving. You can't see your hair. You're wearing a sports bra, so nobody can see that. So all these markers are completely torn away. Everybody's bike looks alike. You know, there's no pink equals girl and black equals boy. That That's not a thing. And so I have the biggest fear of being misgendered while I'm on a bike. And you know, that's the place where I go to feel free and to just live my life and get away from all my insecurities about gender. Before we talk about the sport and the community that we are a part of, we should talk about your journey to discovering identity. I have to confess, like this is this is kind of a new thing for me. No, it straight up is a new thing for me. I never really growing up had to deal with 
discovering my identity to the same extent that you did. You know, for me, it was about, do I want to dress preppy or not? Or for me, it was about how macho should I be in the confines of being an athlete or not? It was never about that deeper question of, do I identify as a man or do I identify as a woman? It was always just like a shade here or a shade there. For you, that journey, one, took a long time. And two, was very dramatic. So how and, and when did this journey of discovering your current identity start? I think I've always known. Since one of my earliest memories as a child was as a feminine person. You know, I, I don't think that I had the language of knowing the difference between man and woman. I was the first born child of my family. I grew up in Sacramento in the 80s. And so... I know you youngins don't even understand what the 80s are. And the 1990s, I hear, are the late 1900s for you guys. But nevertheless, we really didn't have the language and the resources for understanding what transgender really is. And so I didn't have any role models and I didn't have anybody to explain what these feelings were that I had. All that I did have was people that were telling me that I was wrong. There were correcting me when I behaved feminine, when I didn't dress masculine. And there was this social pressure to conform if I wanted the affirmation from friends and from teachers. And so I was sad a lot. And I would go home every night and I would tell myself, you're a masculine heterosexual male. And I would say it over and over and over again. Some days I would be able to convince myself that was true. But most of the days I just cried myself to sleep and I put on a big smile. And I think that it actually helped me to hyperachieve in school. And so, you know, it, to that extent, it definitely benefited me, but it definitely took a toll on my mental welfare. I went to school at UC Davis because I was interested in nutrition. I studied nutrition science and Really, I was interested in the intersection between nutrition and exercise physiology, which is nice because you know, it helped me to become a better athlete now. And then I went to UC Berkeley. And so that was the first time that I really moved away from my family. So just to take a step back, Sacramento and UC Davis are about 20 minutes away. And so I was able to commute. And so I really lived with my family, didn't have that space separation from them to really figure out who I was as an individual. Berkeley being a more liberal place had people that were in the LGBT community. And so I had those individuals, I had, they have a gender equity center. And so I was able to go and figure out what that looked like. And that was the first time that I was able to really figure out who I was as an individual. I did meet somebody that I loved a lot while I was an undergrad at UC Davis and she went to the University of Washington. So we were separated by about an hour plane flight. After three years, she moved back and we became married and I loved her. I still to this day love her. But I'd started to change how I physically expressed myself. And so I became outwardly more and more feminine and identified more and more as a woman. And it got to the point where she didn't want to be married to a woman and made me choose. You either have to be a masculine heterosexual male 
and be my husband or we're going to have to go our separate ways. For me, I couldn't go back in that box and I couldn't pretend anymore. And so I made one of the toughest decisions in my life and we separated. And from the next day, I don't love this term, but I started my transition into the person that I am now. What was it that led you to that decision? Because, you know, a lot of couples have problems and get divorced. It's not uncommon in the United States for a marriage to end in divorce. It doesn't mean that you failed. It doesn't mean anything. There's like no stigma that goes with it. But for you, the divorce was related to your decision or your 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 identity. And from the day that that process of divorce began, you moved your identity, basically. You, you began a shift of the outward expression of your identity more and more towards what it, you always felt it was internally. And I think that there was this interesting divide where the farther physically we were apart, the closer we were together. And then the closer we were physically together, when she would come to visit me at Berkeley, she would see this big shift in physicality. And so I think that emotionally it was tougher, but I got to the point where I could not live my life as a man another day that at some point I was going to have to end my life. And I think that that wouldn't have been good for either of us. It's a heavy, that's a, a heavy statement that, and I get how you're, no, I don't. I honestly, truly don't understand how you would process that emotion. I think that I got to be such a good actor over time and just pretending that I can do this another day, that I can live my life as a heterosexual masculine man and I can make people proud and people will love me if I behave in this way. And at some point I just felt like it was too not, too much and I just I got so tired and it just became overwhelming. And I think it was just, you know, a switch where you get to a point where you can't go back, that the thought of going back would just be the end of me as a person. How did family, friends, social groups, how did they respond to your process of transitioning? Max Best and I went to church a lot. And so our social network was largely intertwined with that. And I think it's not surprising that they weren't super supportive of me transitioning and being transgender. I think they also didn't understand it because I was the first person they'd met. Added to that, then it's intertwined with well, what does it mean if this person identifies as a woman and likes women? Do we still view this person as a guy? And if this person likes women, is that still heterosexual? And so there's this mental gymnastics that they had to try to go through. And so at some point it just was not healthy for either of us. And so I lost that social network. My family, I was really concerned about because I felt like the love was conditional. Obviously it wasn't. And that was something that was in my head. And I think they're my biggest advocates and allies that I have in the world, but I was still concerned with letting them down. I was the firstborn child. I felt that I should be this hyper achiever so that they would continue to love me. But when I told them they were incredibly supportive and 
to that point, my mom went to every single one of my surgeries and there were a lot of them. They helped me to afford the surgeries. It was over $100,000. And I think that's something that I think that isn't appreciated. That's a very privileged thing to do and the quality of life and the acceptance of others, which it shouldn't be that way, is largely driven by how people externally perceive you. So your employability is really based on what you look like. At the end of the day, I think that if you ask my mom, I don't know if I asked the same question to my dad because I've never asked it to him before, but my mom once said, it took me about six months to really mourn the loss of my son, to really come to terms with the loss of the dreams and aspirations that I had for this child. And it was really important, she said, because it made space in her heart for this new child, for this daughter that she didn't know that she wanted, but she got, and she loves the crap out of me. And I love her so much. And I love my brother and sister. I'm so thankful for all of them. You're in a fortunate position to a certain extent because your family did accept you. Your family did support you. That's not the same for a lot of transgender individuals. They face a lot of stigma. They face a lot of challenges. And and when the challenge comes from at home, it's probably even greater. Are there groups, are there support functions, are there others out there that can help? There are definitely support groups that are both physical So there are actually structures where people can go. Like in New York, there's the center and it's very established. Uh, But there are also networks online that people can go, you know, just for emotional support and advice and just to really work through their feelings. And there are also different therapists that work just with transgender individuals. And I think that's also an invaluable resource. The act of transitioning of going through this process is not an overnight thing. It's not one procedure. It's not a a switch that can get flipped. This is a extensive process. Was there a point in time during the course of it where you looked in, in the mirror and you said to yourself, that is the person looking at me now that I've always felt I was on the inside? So I think the biggest thing for me, and this is me personally, and all of my experience obviously is my experience and it's not representative of anybody else, but I felt really uncomfortable with my genitalia. I told you at the beginning that it's not okay to ask what surgeries somebody had, but I felt really uncomfortable with having that. And so having that change meant a great deal to me. And that was the first time where I could look in the mirror and be okay with myself. And it felt like me. This felt like Tiffany and I felt whole. And I think that goes a long way to self-acceptance of who you are and to really be okay just walking down the street and being, I don't necessarily think that I would be to the point usually where I would say that I was proud of myself, but I, I felt okay with myself. Why don't we transition away from talking about you as a as a transgender woman to talking about you as a as a transgender athlete? And I don't want to say it like this, but it's the only way that I can think of saying it, that in our world as we live right now, in this bike racing world, that there is a separate issue from just, quote unquote, being a transgender woman 
and being a transgender athlete. Can you talk a little bit about that difference? I think the the big difference is the acceptance component. You know, what do we look for when we're doing any activity? You know, I think that a lot of it is just having this social network and this interaction with other humans. And I think that we all get into sports so that we can move our bodies as well as to find friends, find our people. And I think that it's especially important for transgender individuals because we've been marginalized for so long. And I think that a lot of us have longed to find our people all our lives and to feel accepted is especially important. And so I think that as a transgender athlete, to feel that you're accepted from your community has a bigger onus and a bigger, more, it's more powerful than it is to most people. So I, I actually pulled up your road results records here. So I know that you have been racing in the last two years or well, 2018, 2019, 2020 doesn't count. So we'll just stick with 2018, 2019. You have raced a lot. What was it like the first time that you came to a race and competed as a woman? So just to take a step back, I was really into yoga before I got into cycling. I had no cardiovascular experience at all. And I got to the point just running to the subway that I was out of breath and I felt like I'm 40 years old. I'm going to have a heart attack. I need to do something. So my brother had recently got one of those Peloton bikes. And I was like, well, what the heck? I live in a studio apartment. I don't have much space anyway. Let's put one more thing in there. So I did. And I loved the heck out of that. I had so much fun grooving. And I feel like it's this also stigmatized thing for road cyclists that it's a less than thing, but it was so much fun. But I also felt like it was a gateway because the next thing I knew I was buying a road bike. And then I started to ride outside. I joined the Rafa cycling club and I ended up meeting somebody that invited me to one of the CRCA central park races. So for those that aren't from New York City, there's only a couple places to ride your bike. If you're in Manhattan, you ride in Central Park. And so the cool thing about Central Park is that everybody in the morning rides there. And so you could see all your friends out training. You don't really even need Strava because you can see what they're doing based on how fast they're riding anyway. Uh, but nevertheless, they put on these races. Um, they're called development races. And so they have one for women. I think they have them twice a year. At this point, I think it was the beginning of July. And the cool thing about it is that it's a two-part thing. So they have this um, component where they'll prepare you. So they'll take you out and they'll do a loop with you the day before so that you know what to expect or the points in which people might attack you. Where do you have to show up? And so I felt safe and supported. And then they started a god-awful time in the morning because Obviously, at Central Park and in New York City, we have so many people. More importantly, we have so many dogs. Often, they're not on leashes, and that's another story. Um, but nevertheless, the races typically start at 6 in the morning or earlier, and we have to be out of the park by 8. And so I think that, you know, at that point, I had to show up at 5.30 in the morning. I was like, I don't know that I ever want to do this again, but I did it anyway and lined up. At the race with, I think there were like 25 or 30 other 
crazies like me. We were hot messes. We had no idea what we were getting into or how this is going to go down. But the cool thing about these development races is that you have other experienced um, veteran riders and racers with you. And it was the most amazing time. I think I ended up coming in fifth place. It was fine. I was not in the break, but I was hooked. I had so much fun. And I think I joined a team a couple weeks later and finally started to get progressively better and was a little more diligent and structured in my training. And I progressively got better and better and did better and better. And I think that it kind of built upon itself and snowballed. And that brings me to now. Looking at the races that you did in 2018, looking at the races that you did in 2019, you know, you've progressed up the chain and and in what I would consider to be a, a normal fashion. A couple races as a Cat 4, Cat 5, moved up to Cat 3. You did really well as a Cat 3 in a couple of uh, series like uh, Women's Woodstock Cycling Grand Prix. You did good there. And then you ended up in at the end of that second year as a Cat 2. And, you know, you get to Intelligentsia Cup and now you're racing against really fast women and you are performing as one would expect a woman to perform against other women who've been doing it for a long time without putting it into fine a point. You have gotten your butt kicked just like the rest of us get our butt kicked on a regular basis. Walk us kind of through that process of um, now a cat too. I am at these big races, you know, what's it like when Tiffany Thomas shows up at the start line of Benchmark. Are you still having fun? I love it. I think the big difference, racing in the late field versus racing in the Cat 3, 4, 5 field, is that I feel like I have less of a chip on my shoulder and I can race for the team. I felt like at the beginning, I was racing for all transgender athletes and I felt this burden on my shoulders that I had to perform so that I was this person that I would show all other transgender people that they can do this and they can have fun. They can be great at it. And I probably was not the nicest person. And I don't think that I was in a place that knew how to race as a good teammate. And I think that I really probably could have took a chill pill and done it a little slower and had more friends in the process. The great part about being an elite cyclist, even one that's not even middle of the pack, back of the pack, is that you get to have fun with your teammates and you get to race for the team. And I love that. I love being able to position a teammate so that they can succeed, even if it means that I don't finish. That it's just a great experience. You're on Philly Bike Expo. What's it like on that team? You know, you are on a team that's accepted you as a woman. I want to get away from using the word transgender woman but I, we can't yet. So just you're on a team that's accepted you as a woman. What's it like? It makes me feel so loved, appreciated, special, and almost invincible. It makes it feel like they're my family and I would do anything for them. And it feels like you know, the sorority that is a healthy sorority that loves you unconditionally and you don't have to get naked or get drunk or do anything else that's 
would be crazy. I mean, at a race, we might do that anyway, but that's neither here nor there. I just am so appreciative that I'm on a team that stands for empowering women. And ultimately, that's what we are. We don't care whether we come you know, in first place or last place. Obviously, we want to do the best that we can. And Taylor, Rachel Rubino, and the rest of my teammates are incredibly talented. And I'm in awe of them and would do anything for them. But even if they came in last place, I don't think that it would matter to me just because I think the quality of human is just so much more important than anything else. So here's the point in time where we shift away from things that are intrinsically good to dealing with the challenges and the conflicts that come with being who you are in this world that we currently live in. Have you faced backlash from women in the Peloton about you being there next to them? Even at the beginning, I felt backlash. So one of the earliest races outside of New York is this race that's about 20 or 30 miles away. Gira de Cielo, I think is how you pronounce it. And the elite field raced a little later than the Cat 4 or 5 field. And while I was getting ready to go to the line, one of the elite women said, I'm so glad that I don't have to race against you. And it made me feel already where I was feeling insecure and uncomfortable, like, I don't belong here. These are not my people. Did she explain to you why she was glad she didn't have to race against you? Or was that just you knew? I knew and she just continued to go off. She just looked at me in a way that you knew that it was not a positive thing. How has that changed? I mean, that was 2018. You know, you are a more known commodity now. You're going to Bucks County. You know, you're you're going to big races and you're seeing the same people again. Has the, has the response changed? Has it gotten worse? What's up going on? So I think the people in the Northeast that know me are incredibly supportive of me. I think Laura Van Gelder has been incredibly supportive of me, at least as a person, in almost like a maternal figure where she's a mama bear and you know, she wouldn't let anybody do anything to any of the cyclists, which you know I love about her. And then there's other people, you know, when I go to intelligentsia that don't know who I am and they don't necessarily know that I'm a transgender athlete, they're also probably not sure and they don't know what to do about that. I think that it's probably more okay right now because I'm towards the back of the pack. I don't know how it would be if I was in the top 10, what that would look like and what the response would be. In the back of my head, it goes through my mind. How are they going to respond if I'm in the top 10? Are they going to not want to be my friend and not want to line up with me and say something behind my back or to my face? And I'm not sure which one would be worse. Is it your goal to get there into the top 10? I think I would be lying if I said that that was not my goal. I mean, it's perfectly okay to have ambition. I mean, to, to, to do the work that you do, that we all do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, we all want to achieve. But when I achieve in my category, nobody's looking at me going, he's achieving only because of the fact that he was assigned male at birth, 
for you, there is that there is that extra level of concern that somebody might have saying like she had an unfair advantage. Does that color your perception of wanting to excel? I think so. And it also makes me feel like I'm darned if I do. I, I'm darned if I don't. So if I win, I feel like people think that I won because I had an unfair advantage. And I feel like if I lose, I lost because I'm just a crappy athlete. And so there's nothing in between. Is the experience, the kind of the the social experience different for you when it comes from men? If if there is a man who sees you and expresses some sort of response, is that different than if it's coming from another woman? I guess I'd start out by saying that men are tend to be less inhibited in their comments. And so they tend to be more vocal about their opinion, even though it doesn't directly affect their experience racing. And so I'm not completely sure that I understand why they feel so strongly about the issue. Do I care less? I think that I, I don't know. I think that I would care about both, but I tend to hear more from the men than I do from the women. I think that I'm more scared about being harmed at a race from a man that I am from a woman. Has there ever been a point in time where you've been physically threatened? At this point, no. So I've not been to the point where I've been at a race where I've had to warm up without friends and people that I knew that were allies that would support me and keep me safe. Is that part of your strategy when you when you are at races, when you are out in the community, is that you want to be surrounded by other people because you don't want to be alone? I think I'm incredibly fearful of being harmed physically or emotionally at a race. And I think that's one of the shortcomings of USAC. And I think that's something that they can work on. But it's incredibly important for me to make sure that while I'm warming up and cooling down, that I'm with people that I know that are safe and that would protect me. What do you think that USAC could be doing better as far as your personal safety or your basically your your involvement in the entire bike racing community? I think one of the shortcomings right now with USAC is that we don't have good messaging that they stand 100% for transgender athletes. I think that the recent statement from the CEO made it sound more ambiguous that we're for our members as a whole and that these issues really aren't an issue for our membership, that it'll tangentially maybe affect some people. And the comment that I found most insulting and reprehensible is that if we moved any of our races, and he was specifically referring to worlds, that it might make the transgender community feel good, but it wouldn't influence or have, make any difference for the rest of our membership. But to your point, how could USAC make me feel safer? I think that by making a statement and making it part of when you sign up for a race, you sign up for rules of conduct and your license is bound by that and there are repercussions for you breaching that code of conduct. I think that that goes a long way. Let us shift our focus here to kind of the big topic that should conclude this interview, which is what is currently happening with transgender women and transgender athletes today. 
We've talked about it a little bit. There are these draconian laws that have been enacted in certain states, Arkansas, Tennessee, Mississippi, for example, that directly impact transgender athletes. And we have to understand where these laws are coming from, or at least what the pretense behind the law is, or the, you have an education that is germane to this discussion. And I think you alluded to it a little bit early on about Berkeley. What was it that you studied at Berkeley? Molecular and biochemical nutrition. In, in a nutshell, what does that mean? So I really understand how genes influence your metabolic path, the metabolic pathways in your body. And so how also what you eat influences all the other inherited and congenital disorders. So that would include the influences of things, of of certain hormones and certain chemicals in the body and how they react together to improve or disprove disimprove performance. Potentially. And yeah, my research right now is how nutrition factors affect blood quality. So you are what you eat. And so what you put in your mouth influences how squishy your blood cells are and how they deform and potentially how they function to carry oxygen. So I think my experience as a scientist also is somewhat part of this discussion as well. Let's talk And I'm going to use, again, air quotes, because medical and scientific critiques. And my understanding is that the critiques that these laws are being put in place for are specifically or primarily targeted at transgender women. So somebody who was assigned male gender at birth but has transitioned because their gender identity is as a woman. What are these big medical or scientific critiques that are being leveled against you being allowed to compete in a women's race? So I think that we probably have to take a step back and start with the premise that transgender women are women and that this argument has already been decided by the International Olympic Committee in 2015. So I think that, you know, we start with that premise that the scientific committee in 2015 looked at the evidence about the differences between men and women and what testosterone could conceivably do and felt that there's no convincing argument that transgender women that abide by the rules and regulations as stipulated in 2015 had a competitive advantage. And so to further the argument that there's some competitive advantage for being transgender, I think, is largely driven by transphobia. But the argument is primarily based on this idea that transgender women have this different muscle and bone structure that is not completely offset by the removal later in life of the testosterone. In a nutshell, because transgender women had male genitalia, meaning male hormones, testosterone for a period of time, years, during puberty or young adulthood, that because of that, they had benefits in muscle and bone development that somebody who was a a cisgender woman would not have had. That would be their argument, yes. 
What's the reality? The reality is that there's huge variability in cisgender women as well, in their bone structure, in the amount of muscle mass. Hematocrit quickly changes. The lifespan of a red blood cell is 120 days. So after a whole year, you've already gone through four lifespans of a red blood cell. So your hematocrit of a transgender woman is exactly the same as a cisgender woman. Muscle mass also is going to change. Bone structure may obviously not change, and it does not change. However, does it confer an advantage? It may or may not in cycling. It probably doesn't. But nevertheless, there's huge variability in size of individuals. So are we going to have a separate category for people that are seven feet versus um, five feet for basketball? I mean, at, at what point do you draw the line that these congenital differences based on hormones confers an advantage that we should exclude a population. So you talked about the 2015 IOC, International Olympic Committee, decision. How has that been implemented here in the United States? What are the things that transgender athletes must do in order to be eligible to compete? So USAC has great policy where if you're category three, four, or five, you can compete based on your identified gender. And as long as you don't go back and forth, then whatever you identify with, you can compete in. Once you become an elite athlete, so you upgrade to category two or category one, you then have to abide by the UCI requirements, which are the same as the IOC requirements that basically mean that you have to have transitioned at least a year before and maintain your testosterone level within narrow bandwidth below a certain threshold. And that threshold is relatively low compared to cisgender individuals and people that are on testosterone suppressants or have gone through um, gender reconstruction surgery or reassignment surgery are way below that level. Does the critique apply equally between a transgender woman and a transgender man, or is it mainly directed at transgender women? It's almost exclusively driven towards transgender women. There are examples of very accomplished transgender men. Chris Mosher is going to the Olympics, and he's amazing, and nobody cares about, well, they do care. We celebrate him. If we had a transgender woman going to the Olympics, I think there'd be a big uproar. And I don't completely understand the difference. And I don't want necessarily Chris to feel the same pressure because you know, I think that's awesome that you know people give him the credo that he deserves. He's an incredible athlete and incredible human. But there is this big difference in how transgender women and transgender men are treated. Does it bother you? Does all of this legislation and hatred just bring you down? It almost feels like people are trying to legislate my life away. They're trying to basically take away my identity and make me feel less than one bill at a time, one right at a time, whether it's you know, trying to take away my health care or to say that I can't play in a sport. And it just feels like one layer of the onion after another. And it just gets so fatiguing and tiring. And I have a support network. I have a therapist that I see. I don't know what people do that don't have that 
those added layers of support, it's tiring. It's it's fatiguing. And there's some days where I don't have enough energy to do my workouts because I'm just so mentally and emotionally fatigued. What are the things that you do in order to confront this? I mean, obviously, therapy is huge. I, I mean, like anybody who doesn't have a therapist, you probably should have a therapist sort of thing. Like having the ability to talk to somebody about your feelings and emotions and things that you're processing who has a background in knowledge of, of helping others deal is as important as having a chiropractor or a massage therapist or a nutritionist. It's just another facet of being a human that we should all have healthcare as a right in this country. Beyond that, what are the things that you do to help you confront these feelings, this emotion? A lot of times I just have to turn off the television and the newspaper and media, especially social media. I, When I first started to transition, I really got into photography as a way that I could non-verbally communicate with the world and see beauty outside of myself. And I really got away from it when I got into bikes because bikes become kind of all-encompassing and they really become your relationship with the world and that becomes your person. It turns out that I have three people because I have three bikes. But I got to the point where it became a little too much and so I picked up my camera again and I was able to have that outlet. It really is liberating and freeing and allows me to express myself in a different way and it just opens my mind and I'm able to then come back at being an advocate. And I really never wanted to be an advocate for marginalized populations, whether it be BIPOC or transgender individuals. And frankly, you know, I didn't even necessarily want to share with the world that I was a transgender athlete because I didn't necessarily want to bear the burden of being a spokesperson and doing something wrong so that everybody thinks that transgender is this one thing. It's not one thing. It's so many different things. But I think that at the end of the day, visibility matters. You have to have a face to see what transgender means. And the more people that are able to be in a place where they can stand up and be out without the repercussion of losing their job or losing their friends or losing their social network. I'm to the point in my career where I do have the support of other faculty members that I'm not going to lose my job. I have teammates that love me and I'm not going to lose my place in the team. My dogs are not going to disown me. My family's not going to disown me. And so I'm at a place now where I can share my life. Potentially comes with ramifications of needing more supported races so that I'm physically safe. But I think that it's just important to be out and just know that people that see other transgender athletes, that that's a possibility. You can race and ride bikes, whether you want to be competitive or just do it for fun. It's there. It's there for everyone. When it comes down to this issue of being a spokesperson, and I want to be careful that I'm I'm not putting you on a pedestal here. I'm not forcing you to be a spokesperson. I found you through Instagram and on uh, transgender visibility day you you posted something up until that point in time i had no idea that you were a transgender athlete and 
we talked about this and, and we talked about coming on the show and I just, you know, you're sharing your experiences and to the extent that you having a voice makes you a spokesperson, makes people follow you, that is a byproduct of what your intention is. And your intention has always been to share your story. So I want to close here with this very pressing issue. We have, I think it's right now 31 states in the country that have draft legislation or actual legislation that directly target transgender athletes. And we're facing exceptional events in Arkansas with Cyclocross Worlds, World Cup uh, races. We have got large road races that happen in Arkansas and in Tennessee and things like that. And we, we as a community are trying to make the point that we don't support these laws, but at the same time, we support people within those states who are trying to fight the good fight and who live there. There is a difference between Arkansas, the government that passed the law and Arkansas, the people who live in Bentonville or Fayetteville or Little Rock or any of the other towns in Arkansas that I would drive by while I was going to school in Mississippi. And, you know, it's it's a hard needle to thread because I have friends and loved ones in these states. I support them. I want to support the promoter of Cyclocross Worlds, but I don't know if I can support the event because of the laws that the government of that state have passed. What are you going to do about these laws and racing in these states or spending time vacationing at Lake of the Ozarks or something or, or hot springs, you know, like what, what are you going to do as a human? So I was not invited to worlds this year. I don't know, maybe you were. So I will not be attending as a bike racer. I won't be attending as a spectator as well. I personally feel uncomfortable going to a state where these laws are either being considered or have already been voted in. I think that those that have not yet been voted in, it's incumbent upon us to contact the different um legislators to let them know that this is not okay. Different sponsors of the races that are going to be held there, I think that we can also contact them to let them know so that they can put pressure to try to let them know that it, it's not okay to have a race in a place where it's not okay to be transgender. And I think at the end of the day, it's going to be dirty. I, I think that there's there's going to be fallout for innocent people, unfortunately, that are trying to live in those states and there will be economic consequences for this fight. I think that there'll also be consequences for me as an individual because I won't be able to race some of the UCI races where they're in states that have these laws. I, I just will not go to them. Well, Tiffany, thank you so much for being on the show, for sharing your story, for everything. I have really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. Next up, we have a slightly different program. It's kind of a hodgepodge, a bag of tricks, a... I'm not sure what the right word is. I sit down with Zach Allison and we talk about a bunch of different topics that have been in the back of our mind or on the forefront of our mind, depending on the day, time of the week. And they are loosely connected in the sense that they're all about bike racing and they're all about crits and they're all about life. And I just really enjoy having an opportunity to talk with Zach because it's so much fun and I find that I get way more information out of him than almost anybody else in the world. So I want you to have the privilege of getting that information too. So stop on by next week for more stories from our Criterium Nation. Dear cycling friends, we accept the fact that we have created the premier gravel and road racing podcast, and we don't think you're crazy to ask us who we think we are. You see us as you want to see us, in the simplest terms, in the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a hobby blogger, a gravel pro, and a curious newbie. And you can find us on the Wide Angle Podium Network. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours the Grodio Podcast.